If you rent a house, I don't care where in the world you are, one thing is true. Your quality of life depends on your landlord. The most obvious way this is true is just taking care of the place. It's a house things are going to need doing. And having a landlord who won't argue with you when you tell them that the faucet is broken or maybe it's time for a new stove, that can be huge. And then there's the rent, obviously, again. Do you have a landlord that values you for being a regular, steady, responsible tenant and sets your rent accordingly? Or do you have a landlord that has no goal except to maximize the income of the property and will take every chance they get to raise it? And finally, and most crucially, is your landlord a real person? Is it somebody whose name you know, someone who you can talk to and can call up on the phone and have a conversation with? You know, if, say, there is a global pandemic and you've lost your job and you just need an extra couple of days to make rent. Or is your landlord basically a computer? A computer that notes that you missed your payment, that never bothers to ask why, and begins the late fee and then eviction process automatically. Millions of people in the United States have that kind of landlord. More of them have it all the time. And behind those automated evictions are the people who profit from them, including, if you follow the money, a whole bunch of Canadians. So should they? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Richard Warnica is a business feature writer for the Toronto Star. Hello, Richard. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And maybe you could start by explaining what the single-family rental industry actually is. Sure. So this is something that really came out of the ashes of the financial crisis. And it's an industry that doesn't really exist with the kind of scale in Canada that it does in the U.S. So basically, after the foreclosure crisis, some of the people who made a lot of money on Wall Street from that realized that housing prices were were incredibly depressed and that they could make money by putting money back into that industry. And, and so what they did was essentially build computer programs that allowed them to scoop up houses in areas where they thought the prices were going to come back and where they thought they would have tenants if they rented them out. Um, and this basically created a whole new class of rental housing. You know, there, there's been corporate-owned apartment buildings for a long time. Obviously, big corporations own malls. They own office towers. But for a lot of reasons, there hasn't been that same kind of mass corporate ownership of single family houses in the rental industry, basically until the last 10 years. What you see now in the U.S. is in certain communities, mostly in the Sun Belt, places like Memphis, Jacksonville, uh, Los Angeles, are neighborhoods that are more and more dominated by rental homes. And these rental homes are owned by a handful of really big companies, including uh, a couple owned by Pretium, which is a company I've been writing about, which was founded 
by one of the traders at Goldman Sachs, who very famously bet against the housing market in the lead up to the financial crisis in, in the big trade that became known as the big short. What do these companies have to do um, to achieve that kind of scale that you're talking about? You mentioned computer programs. Yeah. So the reason that you didn't really have this kind of industry before is because, one, buying all these houses was really hard. And uh, it was always thought that managing single family houses en masse would be harder than it was worth financially. Um, what really changed that was, was cloud computing technology. The first thing that happened was that they built algorithms that allowed them to scour uh, foreclosure sites and listing sites for any house that fit really their bucket, something they thought is in the right area at the right price with the right demographics that they can rent out at a profit. And in the aftermath of the foreclosure crisis, I talked to one uh, journalist who wrote a book about this who was describing to me, you would go to courthouse auctions and there would be representatives from these companies with literal sacks full of cashier's checks. And they were just buying, you know, thousands of houses at a time mm. with these checks. And, and that technology has been, been refined uh, even more so since now. One of the people from, from Progress Residential, which is the company that Pridium uh, rents its houses out through, said in an interview, not with me, but with a trade magazine, that within two hours of any house hitting the real estate listings uh, anywhere in one of their target cities, they can have an offer in it, in for it. They just have it set up so quickly that anything that met, that matches their criteria, they're going to bid for it right away. The other thing is the technology that has been developed to manage all these houses at scale. In a way, they're using similar technology to uh, an Uber or uh, any other kind of large uh, diffuse corporation where you have a small number of employees, but you manage you know, everything from house viewing to people picking up their stuff to moving out remotely. They have a small number generally of local employees and then national policies. And what they've done is to make that possible is to download a lot of the things that traditionally you would have thought of as a landlord's responsibility onto tenants. So they're more responsible for maintenance. They're more responsible for lawn care. They're responsible for having a house professionally cleaned if you're going to move out, uh, having it repainted. All these things that you would traditionally think that's something I should, that my landlord should do, they pass it down to the tenants. And what does that look like from the tenant's point of view? Um, what can that lead to? So talking to people who studied this industry for the stories I, I wrote, what they found and what they believe is that there are a number of things that, that make this structurally a bad industry for tenants. Um, now, obviously, like there are bad landlords at any scale, right? Everyone has a horrible landlord story. The argument that, that critics of this industry make is that because of the way this industry is, is structured, you're seeing bad things for tenants on a scale that, that, that outstrips just normal bad landlord stuff. Part of what you see is, uh, you know, across the industry is escalating rents much higher than you would see in the normal market. So leases and rents get pushed up ever more. The other thing you'll see a lot of is this sort of nickel and diming around fees. It's, it's kind of a copy of, um, of the banking model to get more and more fees from your tenants. So, you know, I talked to one woman who pays, you know, her initial rent was something like $1,100 US, and now it's up over $2,000 US a month because she's paying 
uh, $125 late fee. These numbers are just probably are close, but not exactly right. You know, $50 for garbage, $75 for a month to month convenience fee, you know, $7 service fee. So they continually get you with fees. And then purely from, from having the scale of this kind of uh, industry, you inevitably end up according to tenants and according to people who study the industry again, with, with sort of a litany of problems with, with maintenance, with upkeep. Um, and, you know, one guy I talked to who studied the industry compared it to like dealing with a bad cable company, except the bad cable company manages every aspect of your home. So it's not just, oh, my phone isn't working. My internet isn't working. It's taking me three days to get this. It can be, you know, in one case, I talked to a woman, my toilet exploded in the middle of the night when my nine-year-old daughter is on. My entire floor is flooded. It's been a month. They haven't done anything wow. to repair this damage. How many of those stories do you hear? You, you talk to a whole bunch of people um, caught up in this. Yeah, I talked to a whole bunch of people, and many of them I found through this Facebook site where there were about two and a half thousand members of this site that, that called themselves victims of progress residential. And, you know, I was just inundated uh, with, with people wanting to talk. And, and I should say here that, that the company argued to me that these are a small number of cases and they, and they aren't representative of the, of the typical tenant experience. Right. But, you know, uh, one woman said, you know, her, the, the burners on her stove didn't work for four months or the air conditioning never worked or they arrived and, and the yard was just full of uh, construction waste or they never put any grass down. Um, so tons of stories like that. And then, you know, there was one story I wrote about, which, which was much darker, which was uh, a woman in Florida whose husband shot and killed himself in her bedroom closet and it, it took them from the time he shot himself until a cleaner came in five days for the company to approve actually sending a cleaner in. Now, it wasn't a case where they wanted the company to pay oh for the God. cleaner. They just want they needed for the insurance for them to approve as the owner of a home to send someone in. Um, and so, you know, it, it's heartbreaking. This This woman is telling me about taking her kids back to the house where the, the brains and, and blood of their father is still in the bathroom closet and, you know, her blocking off the closet and blocking off the bathroom, oh, but still sleeping in the bedroom next to it for, you know, two more days, I think, after they, after they moved back into the house before a cleaner came in. And, like, I don't think this is a question of someone of deliberate malice. Do you know what I mean? I don't think anyone set out to be. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly what the woman told me. She didn't think any local employee was deliberately doing something bad. It's just when you operate on a scale like that and, and you have systems in place, sometimes things get slowed down in a way that can have really harsh human consequences and it kind of comes back to the idea, a lot of people who study not just the single family rental home sector, but study, you know, the commercialized housing sector more generally. So commercial apartment buildings, uh, securitized housing. So, you know, you're bundling them together and, and, and selling uh, bonds or debt based off of them is that the inevitable consequence 
of treating someone's home as a financial asset is bad things for the person who lives in that home. And that may be a slight exaggeration, but I, I do think it's worth remembering that the financialization of the housing market almost destroyed the global economy like 12 years ago. It, it wasn't that long ago. And, and I don't think we have necessarily thought through the implications on a public policy level of, of what that means to do it all over again. Well, let's talk about that and about the financialization uh, of housing in the United States. Um, why is a Canadian newspaper reporter digging into this story and this company in particular? Because things take an interesting turn here. Yeah. So I started writing about this because I was writing about um, a crown corporation called the Public Sector Pension Investment Board, uh, which is a normally very quiet, arm's-length body of the federal government that manages the investments of federal government employees, uh, Canadian military employees, and members of the RCMP. And they are also like a major global investor. And I started looking at them like a lot of people in Canada or Canadian journalism started looking at them this year because PSP owns Rivera, which is one of the largest for-profit um, long-term care home operators in the country. And I had been writing about for-profit long-term care homes and had been thinking about doing a follow-up on, okay, why did why did this Canadian pension plan, this government body get into this business? And sort of stumbled on the fact that in late January, uh, PSP entered into a $700 million U.S. partnership to develop more single-family rental uh, rental housing with Predium, which is the owner of Progress and one of the bills themselves now as the second largest operator of single family rental housing in the United States. So that would mean that the success and progress in the single family rental market leads directly back to uh, contributions to the government pension plan. Yeah, basically. It, it means that if you have a federal government pension, if you are a someone who will be owed one at some point, you are on a certain level, the landlord to all these people. That's, that's the business that your pension plan is in now. And these plans and PSP especially operates at arm's length from the government for very good reason, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, their job is to, is to make returns, to keep our pension plan solvent. And it's easier to do that without political interference. But the flip side of that is you now have an escalating number of, of controversial investments from PSP in particular that the government can say, well, they're arm's length, it's not up to us. But then the question becomes, well, okay, who is responsible? Because you know, you're seeing them, they own a for-profit long-term care company. They're investing in uh, single-family home rentals. And I reported earlier this week in the last couple months of 2020, they also invested about $5 million into the U.S. private prison industry. Wow. Is there anything written down anywhere provided to you either via a statement or even just a, a document that exists that kind of outlines their mandate and, and what kind of considerations they take when choosing to invest? Or is it just simply our mandate is to maximize return? 
So their mandate is is legislated. It's in federal legislation, both in the specific legislation that established PSP and then in, in broader uh, pension plan legislation that says, like, you have a fiduciary duty to manage the assets under your control and make gains while minimizing risks. It isn't quite that simple, though. Like, the concept of fiduciary duty one guy who studies it told me it, it's a bit like plasticine. It's much more stretchy and flexible than some people in the pension industry have traditionally wanted to think of it as. And, and PSP, in, in a variety of statements to me, has said that they take what they call in the industry ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues, seriously, and that they, uh, they do consider that when making their investments question is, man, I do feel for people in the pension industry to a certain extent because, or any sort of institutional investor, because on one level, like your job is to make gains, right? To make gains yeah. in the public market. And these are the companies making money. Exactly. And and it's not like this isn't, you know, I think when we think of, you know, Wall Street investors, we're, we're thinking of, you know, the wolf of Wall Street, right? You're thinking a bunch of a bunch of coke snorting <laughs> bros on Wall Street, um, but the people you know PSP is making money for is you know a junior policy advisor in the Federal Department of Interior, which we don't right. even have, but you know that kind of thing. But that doesn't, I don't think, ameliorate their duty to answer for the kind of investments they're making. And I think not just for PSP, but I think institutional investors in general are going to face far more questions, not just about, okay, is it private prisons? Is it gun companies? Is it single family rental housing? But okay, is it coal? Should it be pipelines? What about climate change? Um, Well, that was actually going to be my next question for you, which is, is there anything that they expressly won't invest in, given the things that they have? Coal's a great one. I was going to ask about cannabis, prescription drugs. Um, You know, is there anything out of bounds? Uh, I don't know if there's anything specifically out of bounds for them. I know there are other pension plans that ruled out tobacco entirely. Um, Probably 10 years ago, this debate was happening. And, And the way they... Um, sort of massaged the fiduciary duty was arguing that the business was sort of inevitably going downhill and that uh, it was a bad investment long term. One really senior lawyer in Toronto put it to me like, you can, as long as you can frame fiduciary duty as a value question, not a values question, Mm. you're going to be fine. So if you can make the argument that, say, in the long term, a coal investment isn't going to be good because the coal industry is inevitably going to taper out. Therefore, we want to divest of our coal rather than we want to divest of our coal because we think it's unethical. You're fine. But in terms of PSP specifically, I know that they have a ESG committee. They they look at it, whether or not they specifically screen out anything in particular. I don't know. What's the real solution here, though? Because, you know, when you talk about this pension fund, uh, it is doing its duty regardless of what you or I or anybody listening to this thinks about um, whether or not this is ethical. In the long term, isn't the bigger problem uh, what's being done to regulate the single family rental industry? Yeah, that's an argument that that one, um, one academic who, who has written very critically of the industry made to me is that like she pushes government regulation, not 
individual investors and that guilting individual investors isn't necessarily the right way to do it. But on the other hand, like pressure on large institutional investors can be a real driver of social and economic change. And I I think there's a real line to be drawn between me saying, Jordan, I don't want you putting your $80 into BlackRock or or something like that and saying, PSP, we don't want you putting your $125 billion into things that the Canadian government and the Canadian is, is saying we don't agree with, which, you know, I don't think they have a stand on single family rental housing, but, you know, they would say we are committed to fighting climate change. Okay. Should a crown corporation of the government be investing in companies contributing to climate change? That's the argument that people would make on that one, on that front. You mentioned a couple times um, statements from the fund. Um, mm-hmm. Did they offer anything in particular about this investment or give you any sense that um, the ethical questions were wrestled with other than we do have an ESG arm and they looked at it? So the last statement I got from them on on Predium was that um, in a time when the price of homes continues to increase across the United States, the single family rental industry provides people, most notably millennials or young couples starting a family, the option of a home, a yard, and a standard of living that is now attainable. Huh. You know, something that's really interesting to that from that that I haven't brought up yet is is one of the reasons this industry is growing and one of the reasons Wall Street thinks it's a good investment is in the United States, especially the millennial generation, the generation that now should be in their home buying years is weighed down with more debt, especially student debt than any comparable generation. So you have people hitting the want a house, have a family, need space, age without the ability or the equity to buy one. And so single family rental homes are kind of scooping in, swooping in and saying, well, we can give you that house, but you're not going to build any equity. And, and that's the, right. the worry from sort of financial heads I would talk to about this story. You know, there's, there's a guy at the Wall Street Journal has written a book about this, um, is less about the horrible landlord stories and more about middle-class wealth growth in the United States is essentially housing. That's, you know, wages have been stagnant for generations. The only way they have traditionally built wealth for retirement is because of their houses increasing in value. And if you have a larger and larger portion of people never owning a house, you're going to have a larger and larger portion of people with no real wealth. And and that's a real risk to to the middle class. Is there a danger um, of this industry making it up to Canada? I know you mentioned it's not here yet, but we do have largely the same problems with uh, the millennial generation struggling to be able to afford home and build equity. Yeah. I mean, we don't have the level of student debt they do in the U.S. Like it's bad here, but it's not, it, it's on orders of magnitude worse in the U.S., The other thing we don't have here is we didn't have the foreclosure crisis on the same scale. So there there wasn't ever that single opportunity for the industry to scoop up a huge amount of rental stock in the same way. One possibility would be we see a major dip in housing prices and a company sees that as an opportunity 
to scoop up a lot of stock and build at scale this kind of business. The other possibility would be the idea that people view the housing market here as being so secure that a company would be willing to pay at scale a huge amount for a large number of homes. Um, I, I don't know whether anyone's anyone's thinking about that. One of the one of the largest uh, operators in the U.S. aside from Predium is a company called Tricon, and they are actually based in Toronto, and they have you know commercial and apartment real estate holdings in Canada, but their single family rental home industry is is I, I believe exclusively American. You just said that Canadian housing prices could conceivably dip, which means that possibly everything else we've talked about is no longer valid. <laughs> well, I mean, you never know. Uh, anything can happen. Richard, thank you for helping me understand this because um, I-, I didn't understand the scale of this industry before talking to you. I didn't understand it. I didn't know it existed, really, uh, until I happened to be going through pre- or PSP press releases. So uh, I really appreciate you having me on and, and giving me the chance to talk about it. Richard Warnica of the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. While you're there, as I've told you before, you got to take our survey if you haven't yet. We really want to know what you think about this show and what we should do next. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can, of course, find us in your favorite podcast player, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. You can ask your Amazon Music device to play The Big Story. And you'll hear us there, too. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.